Hello! We're back with another episode of Arena On Air. Bree and I sat down for a very special conversation between Arena Stage's artistic director, Molly Smith, and Woolly Mammoth's artistic director, Maria Manuela Goyanes, to talk about leadership in the arts. Particularly, representation in leadership roles throughout the country. You won't hear a lot from Sky and I during this conversation. Maria and Molly had so much to say, we just let them go. It was a really inspiring conversation, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Arena On Air. I am Maria Manuela Goyanes Perez, La Flor de las Mujeres, which translates into the flower of all women. That's what my mother says. <laughs> um, and I am the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in Washington, D.C. Uh, Woolly Mammoth, it's right now in its 39th season. Um, it's an amazing theater. Howard Shalwitz founded it um, with a couple of others. And the fact that it stayed around and actually persevered over this time is a really big deal for a theater that is pretty alternative to the mainstream. So the two tent poles of Woolly Mammoth are um, aesthetic innovation and social relevance, right? So all of the plays in some way hopefully tick both of those boxes where they're pushing the form, breaking some boundaries, etc., but also speaking to the issues that are happening around us in really provocative, um, hopefully um, interesting and compelling, but also sometimes challenging ways for an audience and really about igniting, it's in igniting that conversation, um, which is why it feels like an alternative to the mainstream. The mainstream is about reaching as many people as you possibly can with the work that you're doing, which I feel like Arena does actually, but certainly on those big, bold, big musicals and those new plays. Woolly Mammoth is actually um, more of a, a little bit of a narrow, narrower focus, right? More like the kinds of plays that are woolly um, are often dark and a little weird and hopefully funny and entertaining, but also provoking to an audience in some way, thought-provoking to an audience in some way. And I'm Molly Smith, and I'm the artistic director of Arena Stage. And Arena Stage is 69 years old this year, so it will be 70. It is one of the first theaters of the not-for-profit movement, which was created by three intrepid women, two in Texas and one in Washington, D.C., Zelda Fitchhandler with her husband, Tom Fitchhandler. It was a revolution in the American theater that was actually won because there's now 12 to 1400 theaters around the country that are regional theaters. We have a focus on American plays, American ideas, and American artists. It's a broad range of plays. I think of us as having big shoulders and an ability to be able to have enormous range, whether we're doing brand new plays on something like the Power Plays or a classic gold standard American musical. I'm interested in what your first experiences with the arts were. I mean, we all have moments in our history, whether it's when we're kids or a little older, that, that moment that we remember as the first play I saw or the first ballet I went to. I'm curious what yours were. First play I saw that was a big play was Camelot with Robert Goulet in it in Yakima, Washington. And I remember everything about it. I remember the red plush seat that I was sitting in. I remember the area of the balcony. I remember the light emanating from the stage. So I have a crystal clear memory of that. 
was probably like eight or nine. But I was interested in theater from when I was a tiny tot because I was always the best reader in first grade. As a matter of fact, I was such a good reader that I often got to wear the reading crown home. And I then, because I liked wearing the reading crown home, because I would get a treat if I had the reading crown, which was usually chocolate ice cream, I then made my own reading crown and began wearing it home every day. I didn't get caught for about maybe three weeks or a month, and then I got caught. But a lot of ice cream. Oh, my God, you got a lot of chocolate ice cream, I bet. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, I, I will share uh, two experiences. The first is... Um, also went to a Catholic school, very small school, Queen of Peace in Flushing, um, Queens. And the Catholic school, the church did Oliver. And I was one of the kids and my light bulb hadn't turned on yet. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I remember my mom was in it and she sang Where is Love, which is beautiful song. Um, and, you know, my mom is Dominican, so it was very heavily accented. Where is love? <laughs> <laughs> which is wow. and it was it was beautiful to me and my mom would sing it all the time at home and so it wasn't until actually okay. I got to high school that I went back to the theater and I had an English teacher because I like reading a lot an English teacher who um, I went to Bronx High School of Science which is a magnet school in um, New York so Manhattan Theater Club had this uh, program to bring like you know student high school students to the theater and I saw Craig Lucas's Blue Window it was the first production of it at Manhattan Theater Club and I remember having like that hubris that teenage hubris of like being like I could do that better and I didn't, I hadn't, I hadn't done anything, right? I mean, literally from like the, 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 the pauper to nothing. Um, and then seeing, I looked it up later. It was Joe Mantello's production. Alice and Janney was in it. I mean, it was probably a really great production. And I bet Joe Mantello could still do that better than I could. But at the time I was like, I should, I, I could do that better. I think I would do it this way and I would do it that way because my imagination Again, coming from reading, was yep. just so yep. um, fertile. Yeah, fertile, and ready to um, ready to dive into something and have some focus. Mm. And so it was after that. Then when I went to college, I, I started um, you know being involved in the student theater, and you know the rest is history. But you didn't become a director; you became a producer. Well, so I started out per, uh, directing. Okay. Actually, well, that's not sort of true. I mean. I played Kate in Taming of the Shrew in college, and I like to say that that was typecasting because I'm so, you know, bossy. Um, so, so, and that was fun. That was for Shakespeare on the Green. And I did some acting there, and then I did some directing there. And directing was actually where I was going to move, um, move towards. But I, you know, I come from a working class background. I wasn't going to, I knew that in terms of making a living, the life of a freelance director is yeah. not an easy life. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, and I was getting jobs as a producer. So I'm because I'm well organized and people seem to like working with me. And so uh -huh. I was able to actually think about things creatively yeah. that way. And I felt like facilitating in that way was super fun. Yeah. So I was like, OK, I'm going to make my living as a producer yeah. and then maybe I'll do some directing on the side. And then once I got to the public, I was like. I had I just had this moment where I was like, I don't think I ever want anyone to tell me what to direct. So I was like, forget that. <laughs> I'm having a great time actually putting all this stuff together. And maybe and 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 probably what happened is that 
that the idea of the breadth of things that you can work on and what you can make happen, the number of projects that you can make happen, the different people that you can you can yeah. work with, really satisfied a full a, a, a big curiosity in me. Whereas I think directing, you know, you can talk about this with like anything goes or or any of your other projects. You kind of have to be obsessed with what you're doing. Yeah. And you have to really be obsessed with like moments, like mm -hmm. particular moments in, you know, how a line is said, how a person is relating to another mm -hmm. person on the stage, what that picture is telling you in terms of the bigger story. And that kind of obsession, like I, I feel like I'm my, my scope, my lens mm -hmm. is a little bit panned back mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's going to be a time where I'm going to be like, hey, I want to actually sort of iris in a little mm -hmm. bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's one of the reasons why I left the public to come to Woolies mm -hmm. is because this is my version of mm -hmm. irising in and getting a little bit deeper, mm -hmm. um, doing less shows and going deeper um, rather than mm -hmm. staying far out. You know, it's, Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it's probably why I like doing both mm -hmm. because I both do a lot of producing and a certain amount of directing. And one is really like fine stitching as far as any kind of tailoring. And the other That's one right. is bouncing from thing to thing to thing. And I'll pull this person together and, oh, that's a good idea. And let's make a phone call to this person. Let's make this happen over here. I think you need to have a bit of a fast-moving, almost rabbit brain uh, to do producing, even though you have to be very focused with it as well. Mm -hmm. But you have to have totally. a certain amount of freedom. Whereas with directing, you have to have that too, or you don't actually get to where you want to get to conceptually. But then at a certain point, it has to be razor sharp. Like, I think my directing changed with The Originalist because I had to focus so far and so hard on that production because I did it five times mm -hmm. as well. I had to keep getting finer and finer and finer mm -hmm. as far as nuance. And then I thought, oh, okay, now I get something else about the theater. I understand that so deeply. And, you know, one of the things that is different about my job now as an artistic director, as opposed to a producer at the public, is that that's coming for me with writing. Mm. I now have so to do like? a lot of writing <laughs> um, in this job because so much of what it is that we have to do is be the master sort of communicators right. of a bigger vision. That's right. And, and, um, I didn't have to do as much of that before. Sure. And that's the kind of n now the nuance and the sort of depth and the fine stitching that is happening for me yeah. um, of being able to be a woolly, you know. And so I appreciate I appreciate the the idea that you're bringing up that actually having both is part of part of the gig. Um, as you were moving forward, beginning your careers, were there any women who influenced or inspired you or a mentor that made an impact? <laughs> I had <laughs> heard of Molly at Perseverance Theater when I was in college. Because yeah. Paula Vogel was on sabbatical for how I learned to drive when I went to college. And I was like so pissed because I was like, when am I going to meet Paula? And then, um, and then, but she would periodically come back to do these boot camps um, with different people. And I always got myself into those boot camps. And then I like stage manage for the new plays, et cetera, whatever. 
the new play festival. Um, but I had heard of Molly Smith and Perseverance Theater. That was one of the first theaters that I had heard of and understood as something that I actually wanted to maybe pursue. And that was, this is in the moment where I was like, well, maybe actually making plays is a way to make a living in some way, shape or form. And I was really looking for where were, where were the places where I could fit and I certainly, you know, um, looking around the country and all, all the white guys at the top, I was like, well, where are the, where are the <laughs> ladies? Where are the, where are the women? And so you, you are still a big inspiration to me and you will continue Aww. to be. <laughs> oh yeah, no question. So I, when I read that, when I heard that question, I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I just want to put a frame and just be like, here it is, <laughs> hang you up on my wall and I'll just put you there. Um, because the stuff that you did there too, about the community really locating yourself and creating a real local, local artistic landscape in uh, Juno, mm-hmm. but then also the reach of those plays mm-hmm. nationally, mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. to me, huge. So yeah, I would say Molly Thank Smith. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're an inspiration to me today because I love to watch how fast and fierce you are <laughs> and what you're doing at Wally. Oh, I mean, it's thank smart. You. Thank you. It's smart. It's really, really fun. And I'd heard about your work at the public, but it's much better to have you here in Washington. Oh, I appreciate it. I actually, so this is the, this is the tattoo for As My Fingertips Take Me, which as far as my fingertips take me, which is the piece by Tanya Khoury that is going to be in the lobby of Woolly Mammoth um, from January 16th through February 3rd. You all should come see it. It's a 10 minute piece. And um, it is about um, the refugee crisis. Wow! And a Syrian refugee. You put your arm. Okay, so let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna help you imagine it. There's a white gallery wall and a hole in it. Some words on the wall on vinyl, and you put some headphones on, and you hear a story, and you hear beautiful music, and you put your arm through the wall, and on the other side is that Syrian refugee who is telling you his story, and he is drawing um, this beautiful, beautiful marking on you and then you take it with you and this has been three days now and so every time I look at my arm I mean I don't have tattoos so every time I look at my arm that piece is staying with me in some way so part of this is what I'm saying about Wooly is like trying to actually break a little bit of um uh, uh, out of the box kind of of the molds of what the- theater or theatrical performance can be yeah. um and so I'm testing it a little bit now uh-huh. um and seeing seeing what that feels like and so far, so good. I mean, we'll see, you know, but so far, so good. Did you see that amazing show that was here in town that was uh, in the arena? Uh, Are you that... talking about Carnegie Arena? Yes. Yeah, the VR experience? Yeah. I loved it. it I, I thought it was totally brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I can't think about immigration in the same way after seeing that. Absolutely. So having this is really great. And... We're, we're in this moment of time where if we aren't focusing that way, whether it's commissioning a play that's about that, uh, with events that are writing a play about uh, oh, DACA great. right now, oh, wow. and she's going to do it through a whole series of, of interviews, or what you're doing with this kind of insulation, then what do we do? I almost left the theater 20 years ago because I was moving into film, and the reason why is because people in filmmaking were talking about the world, whether they were doing docs or whether they were doing any kind of filmmaking. It was about this moment. And I was like, I was so tired of theater people who were 
examining their own navel and seem to have no interest in anything other than the breakdown of the American family. Yeah. And I just, I, I'm tired of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and so I was moving more into film mm. right when I got the phone call to come in and meet a group of people here in Washington, D.C. for the potential of this position. Mm. And I thought if there's one place in the United States where I thought I could have an impact, it was here in Washington, D.C., because this is this is the city where it all happens. I kept looking at your arm as I was sitting here. I mean, the idea is, what Ask is me that? About it. Ask you about mm-hmm. it, and what is it? Mm-hmm. Because then the experience goes from you to somebody else to somebody else. You know, part of the thing that I, as you're, as you're talking, it's resonating with me so much because part of it has to do with this idea of competition, I think, that we're all in competition with each other for, you know, the best new plays and that kind of thing or whatever. Right. And the thing, and I sort of really reject that notion. I'm not that interested in it because you doing a play about the refugee crisis only helps me do my work about the refugee crisis and only helps another person right. do, but, you know, the lens at which we're all coming at right. it is actually, can actually amplify yeah. The issue, amplify yeah. the ideas, you know, because you have your own commissioning program and you have new plays that you're actually generating, that it might be a different conversation. The point is the more provocative you are in your yeah. programming, yeah. the more provocative I you get can to be. be. No, that's, no, that, and that's exactly right. No, it's interesting. That kind of competition, actually, an actor was talking to me about the other day, and he said he felt competition here in Washington, D.C., and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I feel like there's competition between the different theaters. And he said, you go and see work at other theaters, don't you? And I said, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I mostly see work here because, you know, I'm in You're working on it. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, it's your theater. <laughs> but I also go and see work in other places. And yeah. he said he doesn't find that as much with people here. And I thought, ooh, that's really interesting to me. I have to talk to my colleagues about that about really? what are they seeing in the city yeah. and he found that was a problem as far That's as really interesting that competition but one of the things that I've always found is that artistic directors here often will communicate with each other like I have no problem picking up the phone and talking to somebody or going out for brunch with somebody or whatever mm-hmm. are we all wanting to make a viable sustainable industry that pays people what it is that they should be paid yep Part of it is also, I think that one of, I agree with you, part of the the loss of that has a little bit to do with the, you know, the funding structure, right? There's a lot of talk, uh, there's a lot of uh, written right now about the scarcity mentality, right? But there has been for decades upon decades, because that's sort of like what the nonprofit, I mean, it's probably what happened I can't, I don't know when to trace it back, but I imagine the 80s had a lot to do with it Um, and Wall Street and business, you know, and just big business and stuff like that. And just sort of like, we're, you know, we're after your crumbs and it's okay to have more people at the table, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some women, some people of color, that would be great. You know, Mm -hmm. there's enough. The pie isn't at like, we're in the United States. (laughs) The pie, look at the pies (laughs) elsewhere. Like this pie is pretty big. Exactly. Anyway. I think the whole idea of what does it mean to communicate? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to communicate a vision? What does it mean to communicate a vision to one's staff, to one's donors, to to an audience? What are the vehicles that we use to do that? Like certainly this podcast is one way to be able to do it. 
um, our notes and programs, although a lot of people don't read programs, the conversations that we have in uh, small groups, the conversations that we have in large groups. I was just with a law office uh, an hour ago, and there were probably 110, 120 people. And of course, the first thing I ask is, when's the last time you came to Arena? How many people have come to Arena? Getting their hands up, talking about philosophy, talking about uh, the way in which we're moving as a theater company, where we're going in the future. And that's, we're actually uh, part of the, part of the thinking of an organization. We're the philosophical head of an organization. And sometimes you can feel like, oh my God, I've said this 50 times. But the way people hear things is, I hear it, I hear it again, and I start to get a little bit more of the information. I hear it again, I'm starting to model it a little bit. I hear it again, we're starting to put it into action. I can't tell you when I first came to Arena, if you guys were here, we would have been able to move more quickly. But when I first came, focusing the organization on American plays and American ideas, the whole PR department was afraid of focusing there. Because mm-hmm. they said, people are going to be really upset because we're not doing Zelda's Eastern European work and we're not going to be doing this. I said, don't worry. They can go to Shakespeare. They can go. I mean, there's, there's 80 theaters here. Yeah. We can, you know, the idea was let's give Arena a stamp. And mm-hmm. people were afraid of it. And I said, they're going to notice because <laughs> here's the program. <laughs> they're going to notice eventually. So eventually I was able to break through. Um, but, you know, as artistic directors, how do we utilize these different vehicles? How do we use Twitter? How do we use Facebook? How do we use these different energies in terms of getting out to the public? That's important. Yeah, I feel very um, green at that right now because I'm, you know, I'm in that moment where everybody's like, what's your vision, Maria? What's your vision? And I'm like, I've been here five months, you know, and I'm starting to articulate it. You can hear it on this podcast, starting to articulate, you know, a drive and ambition for what it is that Woolly should be standing for. And it has been standing for for 39 years. I, there's something that bucks up against me in terms of needing to articulate that because I, I still have so many questions that and so I'm in that investigatory, exploratory mm-hmm. phase, like interrogating my, you know, country, the art that we're making, the people who get to make it, why, you know, mm-hmm. who's at the table, who's not at the table, right? It all feels so new, right? That that I'm I, I feel like I'm gonna be honing that over the next like ho- however many years I'm lucky enough to get to do the job. And you know that investigating that you're talking about, that changing, that shaping, reshaping, may it always be so. Oh, amen. Amen. May may it always be so. I mean, I keep, I'm always formulating something new because of something somebody's said to me, something that I'm reading in the newspaper or something. You know, I just read New York Times on Sunday, the whole front section was one of the most brilliant sections that I've read in a long time because it had all this information in there about the uh, breakdown of of uh, populism, not just in the United States, but overseas as well. You know, that far right populism. And I thought, oh my God, is there actually a break in that? Because what we've been seeing for the last five or six years is just yeah. a building of it. And they were talking about the breakdown of it. And it was fantastic to me. So I thought, okay, that starts to serve us a little bit. Because one of the things we've been talking about here is, do we need to do some kind of a 
of a conference about democracy and about democracy that has to do with, is democracy worth saving? Where are we in this moment where everything that America is, is being shaken up like an earthquake? And that generations ago, it was shaken up. In the 60s, we were shaking, but nowhere near what we are now. But this whole new Congress that just so came exciting. in, it, it, it has been one of the biggest thrills in my life to see all the women, to see all the people of color, uh, to feel the fierceness that, that people have as well, to feel the drive. And the country's been asleep. You know, it, it, was, it was asleep. It got woken up. And now we're awake and it's all kind of running around like this, you know, it's, it's going to be sloppy. It's going to be messy. It's going to be all those other things. It's going to be erratic, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very exciting time to be alive. And for me, it's the most exciting time to be doing theater. We are, we are in it. And as artistic directors, this is a moment where you prove your mettle. Well, this is exactly right. I, well, I, you know, it feels exact. This is the moment where, and I would even just say as citizens even, right? You have to wear your values on your sleeve. Like literally you walk out the door and you are confronted with really very problematic <laughs> things going on. And where do you stand on those? And make no mistake, not standing for something is actually standing for something. It is perpetuating a That's system, right? right? That's right. That uh, has all of it, all of us in its clutches. And so what I love about the theater and particularly this moment is exactly what you're saying is we, it, it feels exciting to be able to say, no, we're, we, we actually stand for this. We actually believe in this. And needing to say that with as much clarity you know, it's like a sing out Louise moment, like shouting it from the rooftops. This is who we are so that people know and people feel can feel safe in certain places right. where they don't feel safe. But also hopefully that, that we crowd out the other shit. Right. right. I mean, that's the that to me is the key is some of that other stuff. It just it feels evil. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not like that hasn't been the case for people of color in particular. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not like that hasn't. It's not like the, <laughs> there's a joke. there's a joke in she the people that we just did which was basically like can you believe this like totalitarian populist and it was a black actress who's like i'm a black woman in america i can believe it (laughs) (laughs) and uh, cassie jones did it so perfectly she's a local actor and i just thought to myself i was like oh this is this is actually about the people in power, particularly um, white cis men, um, but also I would say white women and others being able to look around and say, oh, what you've been saying is true. And let's actually talk about making the table bigger Mm -hmm. and centering your Mm -hmm. uh, stories and your thoughts and ideas, which Mm -hmm. have not been centered traditionally in this country. Mm -hmm. Let's make that one of the things that we really, really care about. I have a very particular relationship to the statement that I just said because I identify as Latinx and I present as a white person, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, walking through the world, when I'm in white space, I really have to make sure that I am... I have to think about my identity, about who it is that I am and where I come from and my mom um, as my first-generation Latina. But when I'm in a Latin space, because of the privilege that I come to that space, I really have to be thinking about letting um, my darker brothers and sisters speak 
because they haven't gotten to, and I have gotten to. I I have. I'm in a position of power, and I get to. <laughs> I've gotten to do that, and so that's that's been um, that's been a, uh, a growing edge for me, a learning edge for me in this position in particular, and sort of seeing the spaces that you have to navigate around um, and sort of show your values, not just as a welcoming, but also as armor um, in these moments. That's one of the invisible areas of leadership that most people don't think about, which is the leader needs to listen more than speak. Because anything a leader says has a megaphone. And leaders can't lead unless people are following. And it's the worst thing in the world to be walking down the street with a baton and nobody's behind you. So if you're not listening to people that you're working with, if you aren't listening to the public, one will be in trouble. And some leaders don't get that. They think it's all about being a gas bag and talking and talking and talking, and it's not always that. One has to articulate things so that people see where you stand. And then you have to hear what people are thinking about because people will influence you if you allow it. You still have final decision, but people will influence you. Do you think, I'm curious, um, do you think that part of that gas bagging, one of the things that I notice in these jobs, and actually one of the reasons why I was like, maybe I don't want a job like this, is is because the kind of like extroversion that you need to be able to um, do it well, it seems. And it was it was certain sort of seeing different leaders who are not that, mm-hmm. that made me go, wait, maybe there is a way that I could do this differently. Like, mm-hmm. I... I love Oscar Eustace. He is a major mentor of mine. I worked for him for a long time, but I think I was really, really um, intimidated by the idea that being an artistic director needed to look like him because I'm not him. <laughs> Super not him. I'm like, he's much taller than I am. He's from the Midwest. I speak Spanish, you know, that kind of thing. But it was sort of needing to figure out how to find my place, find my my way through Um that was difficult. Um, and it feels like that's what feels galvanizing about this moment is that a lot of people are going, actually, you know, you don't have to look like that mold anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to um, be part of that, too. And my mold is 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 equally as good um, as yours. Um, and that and that doesn't mean that the foundation of learning isn't there. I've, I've learned a lot from my time at the public. No question. Um but it's me now. Yeah, it's finding that piece of leadership inside of you that draws people to you. So I'm an inspirational leader. I understand that about myself. Through many, many years, I will inspire people. That's that's my job, and it comes out of me quite naturally. So that's a focus for me in conversations with people all inspire them to be better. I'll inspire writers to do more. I'll inspire artists to move. There are other leaders that are analytic leaders. That's, that's you know, they're able to really talk about the scope of something in great detail. Lenin would be an analytical leader, mm-hmm. right? There are leaders that are galvanizing leaders. They'll, you know, they'll kind of move people to war, or move people to, uh, you know, so you have to figure out what what is the thing that draws people to me? Find out what that is, 
and find a way to really cradle it and utilize it and understand that that's that's where your your personal power is as a leader and utilize it. So Oscar has a very specific leadership style and he's honed it and he utilizes it and that's that's great. And you have your own style. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's, yeah, I'm imagining that I do. I don't have yet the self-awareness five months into the job to know exactly what what, what all of that means. But I, you know, um, but I, I know um, just from my time at the public and with 13P and stuff that I've been able to do it. It's interesting. I, I guess part of it is like how to find it as authentic a way as possible. Well, it's authentic because it's in you. It's important to see people as leaders that have different personality types or different ways of doing things. Well, part of that is about naming it, right? Yeah. That's the key is that rape, we, we don't, because it's not named, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I just assume mm-hmm. that everybody has to look like, you know, that white cis man, yeah. you know, and walk in the room as if they own the place at every single moment. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. And it's like, actually, maybe that doesn't, that's old style. Yeah. Super old style, super old style. But hopefully that, knock on wood, we're moving in a different direction, you know? Yeah. You are, you both are women in leadership roles in our nation's <laughs> capital. I mean, that's really important. What do you think happens when we see women continue to rise into leadership roles? Well, I think we're seeing it with people like Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. She's boss. Yeah. She's fantastic in what she's doing right now Mm -hmm. and she is of a particular generation and she's taking all of her skills all of her knowledge all of her ability and she's driving it and she has a lot of young women who have just been brought into the house and they are not just learning but they are driving her Mm -hmm. so all this stuff is co-created and washington dc is a city that is very top-down because we're a city where the president is here, the vice president is here, the Congress is over here, the uh, Supreme Court is here. So we're very kind of bifurcated, Mm -hmm. and that's the way everything kind of falls out. But this is also a city now where there are probably more women running museums Mm -hmm. than anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. There are very few artistic directors like Maria and I in terms of in major or medium-sized theaters around the country. There's a few more. I mean, there were 26 openings. A few more women came in, probably 10, Mm -hmm. right? Which everybody thought was fantastic. Very few people of color came in. You kind of hit both bells. Yeah, yeah, Stephanie Ibarra, Hannah Sharif. Yep, yeah, but not, I mean, it wasn't, and how many men of color? So I think this kind of transition of change that we're talking about, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Change will always come if we work for it. And what we're seeing right now is quick, 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 and then it's going to go slow, slow, slow and deep. That's why it's exciting. It's it's interesting. One of the things that you just made me think of with the Nancy Pelosi um, example is um, one time I did a panel with Marsha Norman. You must know Marsha. Yeah. Yeah, right. So what she was saying was, 
you know, when she got to Broadway with Night Mother and getting out and all of that success, she thought she was opening a door and that all the other women will follow. And what she realized was, nope, the door just shut after her. And so it actually galvanized her to want to help make the lilies happen, help help do some other things. But part of this is, I love this idea of this co-creation, right? So ultimately, what you're saying is that the Nancy Pelosi's of the world do have to, it's like you have to open the door, but you actually have to hold it open for those moments where it gets a little bit tricky. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And make sure that you're showing your values and holding it open, right? right. And then we, you know, yep. uh, the new you're ones that are coming in are got to come in, got to run in. That's our job. Um, so last question, what are you most excited or hopeful for in 2019? Oh boy. Great art, great audiences, great marketing. Everybody always thinks of theater is dying. And as the technological world has come in, it's, it's become so much more important because as one of my board members said to, to me today, you know, I go to a lot of movies. I never cry mm-hmm. almost all the time when I go to the theater. Okay. I feel like crying. Yeah. And I said, you know why that is? And he said, why? And I said, it's a human being. It's a human being, and we're seeing other human beings, and we're in a room with other human beings, and we get connected through community. And maybe getting over to doing some travel. I'd like to get to Egypt. That is awesome. Now I've said it. What What are your hopes and dreams? Oh, my God. I have so many. I have so, I have Just so many. Just choose two. Well, so I hope I can keep up with my meditation practice. That's what I need to be able to actually, you know, um, function. Yeah. Um, to have that silence and quiet yeah. feels really important to me while things are chaotic. And I just got back into it, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. And then my other hopes is, like, there's still some jobs open in that 26, and I hope that it'll go to women and people of color. I'd like the cohort of me and Jacob Padron and Hannah Sharif and Stephanie Ibarra and Eric Ting on the West Coast and Che Yu in the um, in the middle of the country to get bigger. So yeah, those are two. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so yeah. Are you kidding? I feel like I I after a while I was like, oh, we could go into the arcana of the, the making the theaters and stuff. But like, I've had a great time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. We can't wait to see what's in store for Arena Stage and Wooly Mammoth in the coming year. Thank you for listening to another episode of Arena On Air. As always, let us know what you thought about the episode using the hashtag ArenaOnAir. 